0: Hello and welcome to the Serial Talker podcast. I'm Peter Von Gomm. Today's story is about a multiple murder that took place back in the mid-1990s in rural America. It was a case of bigotry and discrimination. This story was made into a famous Hollywood movie called Boys Don't Cry. It's about a young trans woman who was coming to grips with her identity, her sexuality and met a very unfortunate end, along with a couple of friends. It's a somber story that makes you hope that the progress and the awareness in society these days will make an impact for others going forward. Let's get into the story. Death of a Deceiver by Eric Konigsberg, originally in Playboy January 1995. I didn't buy the copy. Tina Renee Brandon's mystery was over the moment her body was discovered, face down on a bed in a farmhouse in Humboldt, Nebraska. It was early in the morning on December 31, 1993, and lying dead with Tina were two others. Each of the three had been shot twice, execution style, with a 38 revolver. Through and through is how the coroner would classify their wounds, meaning the bullets had entered the victim's heads from one side and exited the other. In addition, Tina had been stabbed in the liver and her skull had been crushed. She was 21. Word of the triple murder raced through Humboldt, a town of 1,330. At a bar called Big Mike's, townspeople gathered around a police scanner, awaiting identification of the victims, and by dark, the news came. The first was a local woman, and the second, a young man, a friend of hers. The third fatality, the one whose skull had been crushed, was Tina Brandon. Brandon? The locals were perplexed. The barmaid remembered a boy named Brandon living in that house. He had shown up in Humboldt a month or two before and hung out with the kids from nearby Fall City. He told people he was from Lincoln, about two hours away. He was small, five foot five, but good-looking, blue eyes, heavy brows, and sandy hair combed in a half-hearted ducktail. He wore western shirts and looked so young they had carded him at the bar. Brandon Ray Tina, his ID had read. Date of birth, December 10th, 1972. Sex. Male. The folks at Big Mike's pieced together bits of news and speculation and came to a bizarre conclusion. Brandon Tina, the boy who had waltzed into Richardson County and charmed a local girl off her feet, was dead. And Brandon Tina had actually been a woman. Tina Brandon was killed, prosecutors now maintain, by John Lauder and Tom Nissen, jealous friends of a girl she'd been dating. She was killed essentially because she was too successful in passing herself off as a man. She underestimated her own attractiveness and the envy it wrought. Tina Renee Brandon was born to 16-year-old Joanne Brandon on December 10, 1972, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Tina's father, Patrick, was a house painter who had died in a car accident eight months before her birth. She was named for her father's German shepherd, Tina Marie. Joanne is a Lincoln native, doe-eyed and slender, who at one time modeled children's clothing for department stores. She raised Tina and her sister Tammy, who was three years older, in a trailer park in northeast Lincoln. She was remarried once, from the time Tina was two until seven, to a man Tina didn't like. After that, Joanne said, it was Tammy and Tina and me against the world. We were the three musketeers. Where Tammy was prissy and popular, Tina was awkward and impish, tattling to her mom when she caught Tammy kissing a boy. Even though Joanne didn't have much money, she aspired to do good by her daughters and tried to teach them middle-class values. She bought them nice clothes and sent them to Catholic schools, St. Mary's Elementary and Pius Tenth High School. But Tina wasn't much of a student and Pius's strict environment, coinciding as it did with her adolescence, made her feel out of place. She argued with her religion teacher, Father Fucinaro, whenever he lectured on the virtues of abstinence, and she rebelled against the dress code by wearing pants and a tie. She kept her hair short and told people she was allergic to makeup. She was into weightlifting. Tina's friends say she had crushes on a few boys, but she never dated. Her only close friend at Pius was a girl named Sarah, whom Tina cared for so much that when Sarah became pregnant, Tina offered to get legal permission to raise the baby with her. During the fall of 1990, her senior years, an army recruiter visited Pius. Operation Desert Shield was underway, and Tina thought she had found her calling. She planned to enlist and began parading around her mother's trailer in fatigues, but couldn't pass the written entrance exam. She was really upset, Joanne said. And other things in her life started happening. She started to change. One day in late December 1990, not long after her 18th birthday, Tina was in her mother's living room, lying on the couch, watching TV, when the phone rang. She answered it. A girl had dialed the wrong number. Five minutes later, the phone rang again. Hello? Tina said. It was another girl this time. My friend told me a really hot-sounding guy lives here, the girl said. Oh, Tina deadpanned. She knew she had a husky voice. What's your name? The girl said. Tina drew a breath. Billy Brinson, she answered, using her uncle's first name and a variation on her own surname. The two girls flirted on the phone for a few minutes. The caller was 13. They made plans to go roller skating on New Year's Eve. Tina arrived at Holiday Skate World, accompanied by Sarah Gapp and a few other friends. She had explained the date to them as a gag, a dare for herself. We just wanted to see if she could get away with it, Sarah said. Tina wore her usual clothes, dockers, tennis shoes, and a button-down shirt, and wrapped her breasts with an ace bandage. She hooked up with the 13-year-old girl and made it through the evening undiscovered. She even took her hand for a couple skate, grinning like a loon each time she passed Sarah, who watched anxiously from rinkside. Within a couple weeks, Tina hit it off with one of the girl's friends, Heather Kufal. Heather was a petite, blonde ninth grader in the Lincoln Public School. She was 14. The two of them began to date, Tina still posing as Billy. Heather was Tina's first kiss. Thus began the double life of Tina Brandon. Uneasy tomboy by day, cool lady killer by night. As a girl, Tina had never received the kind of fawning so comfortably unloaded on Heather. And it was reciprocated. Tina's former life seemed disconnected and thin. She became a glutton for attention and got into trouble trying to impress Heather. She took money from her mother's bank account and bought Heather clothes and a stereo. Together, they hustled beer with Heather's mother's credit card and cruised O Street until four in the morning. School had never been so much fun. Now it was a big joke. Here was the new Tina Brandon, class clown and queen of the senior pranks, locking pigeons in a classmate's car and removing the toilet seats from the girls' washroom. But she got carried away and stole another girl's leather jacket, and she was failing classes. Just a couple weeks before graduation, Tina was expelled from Pius. With school out of her life, the evolution of her male persona lurched forward. Tina started shaving her face, stuffing socks down the front of her pants, and using the men's bathroom in public. She went through her mother's photo albums and tore up all the pictures of herself wearing dresses. She was absolutely certain that this was what she was meant to be. A boy. But how convinced was Heather? At one point early in their relationship, She had seen Tina's driver's license and read the name Tina Brandon. It's an Irish name, Tina, Tina offered. Most people call me Brandon. I was only kidding when I said my name was Billy. Somehow, that was enough for Heather. He was always joking around about things, making up stories, Heather recalled. Like almost everyone who knew Tina as a boy, she still refers to her with masculine pronouns, I just figured it was like him to make up a name on the phone when he told my friend his name was Billy. Heather was the type of person Tina would stray little from as she traveled on her path of seduction. She was younger than Tina, sexually inexperienced, naive, and poor. And like Tina, Heather had been raised by her mother, who worked several jobs and was rarely at home. She was needy and had never had a boyfriend. In Tina's estimation, Heather was a girl she could outsmart and win over, largely because Heather's longings were not that different from her own. I depended on having Brandon in my life so much, Heather said. No matter what sex he turned out to be, I wanted him. The two had been dating only a few months when Tina moved in with Heather and her mother on Holdridge Street. Tina had a number of jobs, pumping gas, working at convenience stores but couldn't keep one for more than a few months. Once she was fired when a manager caught her making out with Heather behind the cash register. Joanne Brandon blamed Heather for what was happening to Tina. The dressing as a boy, the expulsion, the firings, the stealing. By now, Joanne and her other daughter had started to follow Tina. They had seen her carrying on with Heather but they insisted it was some kind of experimental phase that Tina could, with guidance, snap out of. "'All I want is my daughter back,' Joanne cried to Tina's friend Sarah. "'Do something.' So Sarah paid Heather a visit. When she arrived, Heather was on the phone. "'Tina is really Tina,' Sarah said to Heather. "'She's a girl. Look!' She produced Tina's birth certificate. Heather feigned surprise. "'Oh, really?' she said distantly and went back to the telephone. But if Heather already had some idea, her mother somehow hadn't. The next day, Sarah stopped by the bowling alley where Heather's mother worked and told her Heather was dating a girl. Mrs. Kufal made Tina move out and insisted she leave Heather alone. In January 1992, Sarah Gapp, at the behest of Joanne Brandon, tricked Tina into a car telling her they were on their way to Hardy's, Instead, Tina was taken to Lincoln General Hospital, where the Brandons were waiting. After a consultation, a psychiatrist informed Tina that she was having a sexual identity crisis, as if she hadn't known, and dispatched her to the Lancaster County Crisis Center. She was released three days later, after doctors decided she wasn't a suicide threat. Joanne and Tammy persuaded Tina to attend the counseling sessions the doctors required, and sometimes they accompanied her. At first, Tina refused to participate, sitting in her chair, expressionless and cracking jokes. She was too embarrassed to discuss her sexuality with her family in the room. Joanne refused to give up. I asked her point-blank, Hey, can we work through this? Are you a lesbian? That's disgusting, Tina replied. She had some gay male friends in Lincoln, but refused to accompany them to parties where there would be lots of homosexuals. I can't be with a woman that way. I love them the way a man does. It's like, I'm really a man, trapped inside this body. Tina insisted she hadn't been physically involved with Heather. She leaned forward, elbow on the table, hand to chin. I'm going to be a virgin until the day I die, she announced. They talked some more. Before Tina got to the subject, she'd been blocking out for ten years. Mom, I was raped, Tina said, choking on her tears. It had happened when she was a little girl by a male relative who had also sexually abused Tammy. All three Brandons sobbed. Tina and her sister had never discussed it. Their mother was mortified by the revelation. From that point on, it was virtually impossible to get Tina to talk to her psychiatrists. From that point on, It was virtually impossible to get Tina to talk to her psychiatrists. She preferred not to dredge up any more unhappy or complicated feelings, and no resolution was made about her identity or future. They called her a compulsive liar, Joanne recalled. She stopped attending the sessions after two weeks. They said she didn't need any long-term care and let her go. After that, Tammy said, we didn't know anything. Enjoying a popularity she had never known as a woman, the male Tina Brandon lived a peripatetic life. From the time that Tina met Heather to the end of 1993, Tina changed residence at least 19 times, moving in with newfound friends or, when she had to, bunking with family. If he could stay somewhere one night, then turn it into two or a week, he was happy, said one friend. Constantly running from anything that grounded her to her old life, Tina's behavior grew increasingly troublesome. She continued to steal from people whenever she could. While living with Sarah Gap, she ran up a $895 phone bill and stole Gap's automatic teller machine card. Tina forged checks from the account of her grandmother, who was angry enough to press charges. Her grandmother wasn't the only one to report her, from March 1991 to the end of '93, Tina was charged with 18 crimes, mostly for forgery or failure to appear in court. She served several short jail terms. Most of the time, Tina stole only to buy her girlfriend's gifts. If she made them happy enough, she figured, they wouldn't leave her. During those three years, there were perhaps a dozen girls who claimed Billy Brinson, Brandon, Tina... Tenna Brandon, Brandon Tina, or Brandon Yale as their beau. Most of them were high school age and would go out with him for like a week until they found out, said 18-year-old Daphne, who dated Tina in the fall of 93. But even after that, he would totally convince you that he was a guy. In fact, there were a few girls who were easily convinced and stayed with Tina for months. With only 200,000 people, Lincoln didn't allow Tina to run far from her past. Often, when she had found a new circle of friends, an old acquaintance, or even a jealous former girlfriend, would arrive on the scene and blurt out that she was a woman. Other times, she would bump into a former schoolmate, who would greet her as Tina. Tina usually extricated herself from the confusion by telling people she was a hermaphrodite. It means, I was born with both sexes, but deep down inside I'm a man she would say. She had learned the term in biology class, but it didn't serve her that well. Most girls, even if they believed her, were scared away by its sheer freakishness. Time and again, a paramour would profess never to have suspected anything abnormal about Tina. One even said she saw Tina urinate standing up, and two girls at the same time claimed to be pregnant with Tina's baby. In any case, Tina didn't seem to have trouble finding new people to con, new women to woo, women who desperately wanted to be charmed by a man who understood their needs. Her relationships were with girls whose ideal of a man had never been realized until they met Tina, girls with mostly troubled relationships with the men in their lives. Tina was their savior, attentive and affectionate. She was less awkward at 19 or 20 than most of the 16-year-old boys who were her competition. She had charisma. She wrote her girlfriends silly poetry, did their laundry, and held their hands in public. But how did Tina satisfy their sexual needs? That was the trickiest part of the routine, requiring some ingenuity on her end, and perhaps some denial from her partners, most of whom were virgins. And there was the realistic plastic penis that she attached to herself. Tina liked to begin sexual encounters with extended foreplay, lots of kissing and ear-nibbling, undressing her partners, playing with their breasts. But she never allowed anyone to undress her. With all but a few girls, she kept her undershirt and boxer shorts on. Tina's sex life depended on a population of girls who considered sex nothing more than something they did for their boyfriends. With Tina, they began to understand what all the fuss was about. Brandon was my great awakening. Sex could be fun and natural, said a girl who slept with only one other boy before meeting Tina. It had been dull with her ex-boyfriend. She would spend a night at his parents' house every weekend and wait for it to be over staring at the ceiling and looking at the Star Wars wallpaper, the Star Wars curtains. Tina didn't rush girls into intercourse, but instead asked them to let her know when they were ready. She told them she was a virgin. Most of the girls, meanwhile, were too inexperienced to realize that Tina was using a fake penis and too shy to look at or touch it. I noticed that he could go a long time, recalled another girlfriend. One of the few girls to actually see Tina naked or discover the dildo but it wasn't until after he'd said he'd had a sex change operation that I noticed that it stayed hard afterward when I asked him about it he said it was because the only options after the surgery were for it to be hard all the time or for him to use a pump still it was funny she said sometimes I'd feel through his pants and it'd be small and sometimes it felt like he had a lot more There were times when Tina hung around a cousin's dorm room at the Lincoln School of Commerce, looking for something to do. One day, in March 1993, Tina met Gina Bartu, a freckled 19-year-old secretarial student. It took Tina two days to ask her out, and in another three days, each had told the other, I love you. Soon, Tina had Gina's name tattooed on her arm. You better not break up with me or I'm gonna have to date only Gina's. Tina would say. What was it about Gina? Sometimes, Tina sat up late at night with her buddies from work and talked about it. Heather had a killer body and knew how to have a good time. Some of the other girls were pretty cool if you told them what they wanted to hear. But Gina, well, she was shy and kind and had her act together. She was a farm girl from Crete, Nebraska, a college student, and she had a job. The kind of girl you could marry, Tina said. And so one afternoon in late May, Tina sat on Gina's bed and waited for her to make her way back from class. I don't know how to say this, Tina said, but will you marry me? Yeah, Gina replied. He didn't have a ring yet, Gina recalled, but he started planning our engagement party right away. He was a hopeless romantic. The party was the biggest blowout Tina could manage. She rented three rooms at the Harvester Motel and wore a tuxedo. Only about 30 guests came, since Tina couldn't invite any friends from her past. But a few ex-girlfriends and a guy Gina had dated showed up. Tina ordered cigarettes and film from the front desk and snapped pictures all night. Pizza was delivered, and a hot tub was filled with ice and beer. Midway into the evening, Tina pulled Gina aside. See, Gina? Has anyone ever done anything like this for you before? She said. She took Gina's hand and got down on one knee. Everybody, quiet. Tina delivered a formal proposal. Brandon made a speech about how he was settling down, said Kendall Hawthorne, a friend Tina had met working at the state fair. We all saw him as a ladies' man, but now he said it was time for him to stop looking. Gina was loving it. They set May 28th, 1994, one year from that night, as their wedding date. The truth is, Gina had some reservations about Tina. Two of Tina's ex-girlfriends had told her Tina was a girl, and had even shown her a yearbook photo. She confronted Tina immediately, and Tina, flustered, dug her hands into her armpits and explained. She had been raised as a girl until the 8th grade, she said. Then she had had an operation in Omaha. Soon after, Gina noticed Tina's small breasts. Tina said they would take a while to go away completely, and Gina remained credulous. Of course it bothered me, but I let it go, Gina said. People believe what they want to when they're in love. Even more so than Heather, Gina clung to Tina, moving in with her to a house shared by two gay men in their 20s. Tina didn't have many belongings, but always carried a faded photo of her father at the age of 18. He loved to compare that picture to himself, Gina said. They did look a lot alike. Such pathos swelled in Tina's psyche. Such fear of rejection that she continued her life of petty crime. She forged checks to buy groceries rather than simply allow Gina to pay. When Tina was brought to court on one charge, Gina reluctantly posted the $345 bail. Driving Tina home, Gina was livid. She had seen the arrest summons. What was this Tina Renee business? Tina confessed that she hadn't yet had the operation that would make her a full-fledged male, but she insisted she planned to, and some steps were already underway. He told me how his other girlfriends had treated him like crap when they found out, Gina said, and it made me really angry. I started thinking, what does it matter what a person is like physically? He was a male to me, and I'd never been happier in my life. I told him to get the operation if that's what he wanted to do. I said I'd stay with him. Next month, the mastectomy Tina promised. When a month went by, Gina inquired about it. Tina responded, I don't have the money. When she eventually confessed that she couldn't go through with it, Gina protested. All you care about is what society thinks, Tina said. You think I have to fit society's definition of a man? If you aren't going to do it, Gina said, then this has to end. It would be just too hard to deal with. In late August, Gina got her own place and asked for some time to think. Tina grew desperate, stealing Gina's Montgomery Ward credit card and using it to buy her a diamond ring. When Gina got the bill, she confronted Tina, who denied the theft. They fought all over the house, upstairs, downstairs, in the bedroom, in the kitchen. It was their only real fight. We're not getting married, Brandon, Gina screamed. What were you thinking? I always told you I'd come through with the ring, Tina said and smiled weakly. The two girls erupted into laughter, but it was too late. I hope you're enjoying this story. This is the end of part one of Death of a Deceiver. The Tina Brandon story. Stay tuned for the final coming up next week. If you like these kinds of podcasts, please consider subscribing to the channel. If you would like to support the podcast, greatly appreciated. You could always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description. And if you have an intriguing, compelling, true story that you would like me to consider reading, please send me an email. That information is also in the description. Thanks, we'll see you for part two next week. Take care. Ciao.